This is the Off Duty On Duty Podcast, episode number 87. I'm your host, Brian. Welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. On this podcast, we take topics relevant to today's gun owners, and we tackle them from the perspective of everyday concealed carriers and law enforcement officers to give you both angles of discussion. Today, I'm joined by retired Lieutenant Doug Deaton. We're going to talk about uh, some of the expert witness stuff, but uh, primarily things you need to be concerned about as a cop and a concealed carrier when it comes to your training. First, this episode is brought to you by KSG Armory. New title sponsor to the podcast, KSG Armory, American-made Kydex holsters. I have three of them. They're all exceptional. And uh, one of them is in Hamburglar Purple. I love it. Got a bunch of different colors, and uh, they're making holsters for just about every big player in the legitimate concealed carry uh, you know, realm. And uh, <clears throat> lots of different options. Good stuff. Uh, KSGArmory.com. Links are always in the show notes. And uh, CCW Safe Off Duty 10 gets you 10 off your membership. Uh, it's a legal service membership for concealed carriers and law enforcement officers. The most comprehensive coverage by the most experienced team. Check them out today at CCWSafe.com. Oh, let's bring in our guest, Doug Deaton, who's a retired Texas officer. And how many years in law enforcement did you do there? Uh, I came out to be uh, 25 years and nine months. So full, uh, the full ride. I guess. Yeah, I guess so. I, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, there was a time where I, I thought I was going to go, uh, a full 30 years and, um, uh, even entertained at least the idea of, um, maybe promoting, you know, higher, maybe trying to become an assistant chief or a chief somewhere. A couple of years as a Lieutenant, uh, broke me of that notion. And, uh, I, uh, started looking at the private sector, last uh last five years of my career uh, just really was kind of putting some feelers out there and and trying to uh see if there was something else that i could do and uh and it turns out there was so yeah 25 years and nine months the only reason i know the nine months is uh i, I had to calculate all that just the other day for a a um a letter and a, a, a professional opinion that i was writing professional opinion so that's a, that's an interesting uh, venture. Like, what are you doing now? What was phase two after retirement? So I uh, I'm a licensed private investigator, and um, and I, I do have a small uh, I just have a little small one man uh, business. Uh, it's uh, you know, I don't know if your listeners care to look you know check it out, but uh, it's rdr you know, it's rdr uh, com, and um, like I said, I'm just a just a one man one man shop. I um, I will be brutally honest. I am not as on fire for private investigations as I thought that I might be, and because uh, I spent the last five years of my career in criminal investigations, and uh, what I learned very quickly uh, when I started looking at the field of private investigations is that the vast majority of it is centered around uh, infidelity cases, so cheating spouse cases, and uh, insurance fraud. Uh, granted, there's a lot more, but that's the that's the bulk of the private investigations, I guess you can say, industry. And so I say right up front on my website that I do not accept any cases 
related to infidelity, cheating spouses, uh, or insurance fraud. Uh, I've done enough surveillance to last a lifetime, and I have no interest in sitting in a car somewhere for 36 hours waiting for some guy to come out there and load some concrete into a truck, you know, right. Uh, some guy that supposedly has a bad back. I, I'm just, I'm not, I'm just not going to do that. And so I've already right there, I've kind of cut myself out of uh, quite a bit of potential income from private investigations. But what I really was always interested in uh, was um, being a, a so-called expert witness. Uh, now I will say, I don't like the word expert. Uh, I don't consider myself uh, it, you know, for guys like you and I, uh, for, and certainly I'm sure for most of the listeners, I I find there are actually very few experts in the world. And the ones that we all believe to be experts that everyone knows are experts, most of those guys also don't like to use the term expert when they refer to themselves. Uh, the term expert witness actually has a legal definition. Uh, it is uh, typically defined in some way, either in state law or, or federal law. And so it's a fancy, it's just a fancy term for somebody who has a, a significant amount of actual hands-on experience, training, education within a particular field. Now, whether that's, you know, psychology or engineering or use of force, it could be, you could be whatever, you know, whatever the field is, aviation, et cetera. And uh, depending on the kind of cases uh, that they have, attorneys will seek out expert witnesses to assist them with either uh, trial preparation or the investigation of a case, uh, or just for, frankly, just for consulting. Uh, they, so that's what I do almost exclusively now. Uh, I've been, I've been retired for almost, uh, just about a year, about exactly a year. In fact, um, so the first six months were, were very slow, um, which is understandable. Uh, and of course we were also coming, you know, coming off of COVID at the time. Right. But, uh, but now that, uh, you know, now that the COVID thing is over, uh, the courts have opened up again and all of those cases that were being held back. Now they're, they're moving forward. You know, I'm starting to get a lot more work. And of course, once you've been successful with one or two uh, attorneys, then word spreads. And so I've uh, I've been contacted. I'm working actively working on multiple cases right now uh, all across the state of Texas. And I've been contacted and consulted with by uh, lawyers in um Michigan, Oregon, and, and California, actually. Yeah. Uh, so a lot, a lot of places like to, uh, a lot of attorneys uh, like to go uh, and find experts that are uh, about as far away from their jurisdiction as possible so that there's no no chance for any kind of conflict of interest. And also, as the saying goes, what is an expert? It's just a guy from out of town. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, some guy from out of town, you know. And so they like to do, they like, they like that as well. So what kind of, uh, on the, the subject of, uh, like expert witness review and consulting and stuff like that, uh, what, what's your primary focus right now? Uh, you, you'd mentioned like in the LE career, you'd been involved with, uh, uh, some agency growing pains and training issues. And then yes, right. that seems to have spiraled into chapter two here. Yeah. It's helped out quite a bit. Um, so I uh, the, the primary areas that that I work in now are uh, use of force, police procedure, uh, criminal investigations. Uh, I typically review and assess uh, law enforcement responses uh, to you know to ongoing situations, whether that's a you know as we might call it a, a really hot call for service, something that's very complicated and you know turns into some kind of significant force. 
uh, SWAT operations. Uh, I also look at uses of force uh, that have been uh, committed either by private security personnel or private citizens. Um, I won't, you know, I won't be able to mention, uh, say the names of my of my clients or right. the cities, you know, where these things occurred. But I can tell you that, uh, for example, I am, I'm currently assigned to a, a case in which a a, a private security guard uh, got into a shooting uh, with with somebody else, um, and he's now been charged with uh, with murder. And um, you know, I've looked at some cases involving law enforcement use of force. Which again, you're not going to find anybody who's more pro police than me. I'm I'm probably the most pro cop guy that I know, uh, but that doesn't change the fact that some of these cases that I've been hired to look at, uh, the first thirty seconds of the video are just horrifying. I'm just like, well, you know, what was this guy thinking? Uh, and then when you find out he doesn't work at that agency anymore, you think, well, there might be a reason for that. Um, so again, mostly I look at uh, use of force. Um, investigations and, and police procedure. Um, and of course, that also bleeds over into uh, into private, you know, use of force by private citizens. You know, we kind of talked in the pre-show about that, that uh, there's some there's some things on the horizon that I think as law enforcement, you get kind of a front row seat to when things change and there's trends and there's uh, yes. case law. And it, it pretty well immediately affects you. <clears throat> yes. Um, or if not immediately, you're you're aware that that's that's a that's a potential uh, training adjustment or whatever that's coming, right? Um, yeah, I mean, and we we have most. I mean, most guys, most police officers who are you know law enforcement personnel who work at at um, you know at decent agencies, uh, you're going to be notified about these significant changes in law, policy, case law, uh, in you know annual in service training. Uh, some places are big enough to have a legal advisor. Um, they, you know, you can, you can, you know, you can certainly rely on them to send out all kinds of, uh, bulletins, uh, which, you know, maybe only half the guys will actually read. Uh, but, uh, you're, you're right. When you're actually working in the field of law enforcement, a new, a new case has been decided, a new ruling comes out. Uh, there's been something, you know, new here in Texas, something new happens down in Austin, you know, and the governor actually signs off on it. Uh, it's it's always great because uh, we get notified about it and people are, you know, typically they're very clear about, hey, remember how you used to be able to do A, B and C? Like, yeah, we, you know, what do you mean used to? Like, well, we can't do that anymore. What? Right. What are you talking about? You know, like, well, I'm talking about this new law that just passed, dude. That's what I'm talking about. What? This is BS. I can't believe this. Well, maybe it is. Or maybe it's not. But it's the law. And right. here it is. And I think that. Um, through through no fault of their own. I mean, most private citizens, most concealed carry people are just trying to go about their their lives. I mean, they, they have a regular job and a family and so forth. And uh, not everybody keeps up with changes in, uh, you know, changes in the law, changes in, 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 in policy. And specifically, when I say that, what I'm referring to is the policy of district attorney's offices. A lot of people forget that a district attorney's office is an elected position. It is a political position because the guy had whoever that is that, that's your district attorney, they're an elected official. But they do, in fact, set policy uh, about how how they're going to prosecute cases, uh, what kind of cases they're, they're going to take and not take and um, and the manner in which they are going to actually prosecute those cases. And believe me, uh, that can have a significant impact on a private citizen's personal life. Um, and people don't realize that um, I, I've noticed many times people 
don't know who their uh, who their district attorney is. They don't know what that person's uh, politics and personal beliefs are. And and the vast majority of private citizens have absolutely no idea what the policies of their district attorney's office is. But uh, I am here to tell anyone who wants to listen, those policies absolutely have a significant uh, I mean, can have a significant impact on your personal freedom and uh, on whether or not you will or won't be charged with a crime uh, after a shooting has occurred. That one has been uh, a pretty unique area right now that I think people don't understand the gravity of. One of the things me and some of my Texas law enforcement buds talk about is uh, there are places in Texas where anything that ends up in a, a use of deadly force goes before a grand jury. Like yes. every single one. That's yeah, that's correct. And uh, you know, here where I live depends on the nature of the case and what county you're in. It might be, hey, this is this is a self defense case, or it might be we think this is a self defense case, but we're gonna convene a grand jury and see what the what the right. populace from uh, what's the term a multi-county grand jury so we take somebody from each of these counties and we put them all together in a room and say what do you think is this self-defense or is this a a murder oh wow like you said regionally it can it can fluctuate uh very uh, yes it can Uh, so uh, just to give it just a local example i'm in i'm in the dallas area uh so in the in the dfw area uh, I forget what the population is here, but it's uh, it's somewhere around seven million people uh, across multiple counties. So Dallas County, um, obviously, where the city of Dallas is, and then you have Tarrant County, uh, which is Fort Worth. But north of those two, you you have uh, Collin County, uh, and then uh, Denton County. And I can assure you, uh, again, because I've been in the room. Uh, during a, a very complicated murder investigation uh, involving a serial killer who had had murdered women across multiple counties in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So I got to see uh, prosecutors from uh, multiple counties in the same room. Uh, I'll, I'll say it was a discussion. It was a nice discussion. It was a little bit spirited, uh, but there is a distinct difference amongst uh, different DA's offices. And, and I'm not exaggerating, where your use of force incident occurs uh, will, again, will determine uh, how your life is going to go uh, for the next uh, at least six months, if not six years. So if I'm on this side of the street and I get in a shooting, well, then I'm in Collin County. If I'm on the other side of the same street, that's Dallas County. And that's going to be handled in a much different ma- manner than it would be in any of these other surrounding counties. Right. Yeah. So, And, and I think that's... <clears throat> That's pretty universal across the U.S. Um, and I think police officers see that more so than, you know, your average uh, armed citizen. They're, they're oh, more in oh, tune sure. with that. Very much so, yes. You know, I work Maybe. in a city that borders and, and encompasses five counties. So right. depending on uh, – there's one very large one, and then the other ones have – are kind of mm-hmm. on the, the outskirts of town. But right. that dramatically impacts how – <laughs> how a case is handled from uh, from incident to closure. So sure. You know, and it, it sometimes the differences are very subtle. Uh, you know, uh, you know, County A uh, requires that you submit your cases with, uh, you know, on this kind of form, you know, and file, you know, all audiovisual files must be, uh, you know, they have to be submitted in this particular format, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the other part of your city, maybe being in County B, 
they're sometimes they're like, no, you can send it in, you know, whatever format you want, or, or they have their own particular, you know, their own particular style and, and methods that they want you to file, you know, the same type of case with, it's just, it's a matter of taste and, uh, you know, almost like different flavor, if you will. Right. But, uh, no, where, uh, but again, I, I cannot emphasize enough, uh, where things really start to get strange. Um, um, I won't, I won't say the name of the County, but, uh, there's a County somewhere close to the center of Texas, closer to the center of Texas. Uh, and many people uh, will tell you that the DA in that county is an actual communist, uh, according to his own words, not right. not not uh, not according to someone else's uh, interpretation. Uh, I've been told by multiple people that have been in the room. So that guy is a out of the closet Fidel Castro style communist. And his primary goal is to prosecute as many police officers as possible. And uh, I was just talking with the attorney who works in that same county uh, yesterday. And that attorney told me that as far as he is aware, that they have indicted 30 police officers in that county now. Wow. Uh, and that, uh, of course, you know, this is the same place where they uh, they really did. Uh, do, do some some very serious defunding of the police and uh, so on and so forth. Well, that that's had a so that's had some obvious downstream effects. You have uh, any any cops who can can retire and get out. They they are. Uh, this is a place that is having difficulty uh, even getting a single uh, academy class up and going. So they've only had a couple of classes, academy classes in, in the last two years. They are extremely shorthanded. And now they have, uh, sometimes through no fault of their own, they have inexperienced detectives and police officers that are working on major cases. So who suffers in the end? It's the citizens. It's right. citizens who suffer in the end. And all of that that is occurring in this particular place is, I won't say almost entirely, but it is largely, uh, largely the fault of that one DA. I mean, this elected official. Yeah. So – on the armed citizen side, you know, like I said, we it, police you get you get the front row seat um, to the those sweeping changes pretty quickly. Yes, um, and one of the things we've we've talked about just offline and in conversations is like the training side of the house. Uh, when when you're a cop, I mean, from the brand newest cop on the department to the most senior veteran, when there's a when there's a change, you you're going to receive an update. You're going to get, uh, you're going to get trained on that and that training is going to be documented and that's going to follow you until that training changes. Right. Right. Um, correct. And on the armed citizen side, we have a lot of people that are out seeking, uh, you know, seeking training to get to a higher level of proficiency or, or, or whatever their personal motivations for that are. Right. Um, and there's some debate about, well, how do we document that training? Should we keep training records? What does that reflect on us if we do get in an incident? Is that good? Is it bad? Is it positive, negative, and so on? Um, and I, I kind of want some insight into that because there's some things that we're going to discuss here in a few minutes that uh, could impact the way you select training. So yes, give us some insight on that. So, you know, again, it's, I recommend, um, I can, I can just say this from some, professional experiences that I've had and, and, and experiences that I've watched others go through is that I, I recommend that everyone be very cautious and selective 
about who they train with. Uh, because, um, you know, if you, if you select your instructors based on the number of followers they have on Instagram, uh, based on, you know, the, uh, the wow factor in their, on their YouTube videos, um, you are using the wrong metrics. And, um, you know, again, without mentioning any names here, there, there are some instructors out there who they are excellent shooters and, and they have a very solid professional backgrounds, you know, bona fides or bona fides. You know, I like to say bona fides, but, uh, uh, but uh, at the end of the day, when you look at their videos and look at their, their general public presentation, it's uh, it's cartoonish. It's almost clownish. And they say reckless things that are not in alignment with the law Uh, that may, whatever the, some of these guys are saying uh, that, that stuff may have been uh, acceptable or allowable, uh, overseas, but it is absolutely a violation of law to do what some of these guys are claiming that you should do. Uh, I'll just give you one quick example. Um, one of the one of the ones that's more common, at least used to be, was this notion of shoot them to the ground. Right? Yeah, if you have a if you have a deadly threat in front of you, you know, you shoot just shoot him to the ground. You know, make sure he's no longer a threat. Well, okay, and maybe there are times when that is appropriate. I'm not saying there's not. I'm, I can I can envision multiple scenarios in which it would be perfectly appropriate to to quote unquote shoot somebody to the ground. But what many many people don't realize is that here in the continental United States, no matter what state you're in, uh, and no matter what county you're in. Uh, every single one of those bullets that leaves your firearm must be legally accountable. You have to be able to legally articulate and explain why it was why you had to shoot that person two times, three times, six times. Why did you have to shoot him six times? And we have seen shootings where the first three shots were absolutely justifiable. But once they're laying on the ground. And they're no longer they're no longer a threat or they've dropped the gun or they've dropped the knife and they keep shooting the person. Well, guess what? Those extra shots that you just fired into an unarmed man who was who was backpedaling away from you are no longer self-defense. And that's a great way to go straight to prison. And there have been instructors out there who run their mouths reckless. They don't know what they don't know. uh, And they've never had to work in that legal environment uh, like you and I have. They've never been on the stand. They've never been shredded by a by an aggressive attorney. And the other phrase that I like to use a lot is is that people do not understand the power of a subpoena. People think that, uh, well, I'm I'm only going to tell them what I want them to know. No, you're not. Uh, Subpoenas are a much more powerful thing than what most people have any uh, inkling of. And so back to your point, I I recommend people do keep training records for themselves okay. as much as possible. I, th- I think you should. Uh, and But make sure that the trainers that you're selecting and that you're training under uh, are rational and, and reasonable people. Uh, and, cert- and more importantly, that they appear to be rational and reasonable people to the everyman, to the everyday guy, everyday woman that is most likely going to be sitting on, in, in, on that grand jury and possibly on your trial jury. Right. And let's... Let's dive off into the jury rabbit hole again, uh, which I, I haven't done this too often. Uh, haven't done this too often on the podcast. Uh, Daryl and I have done it a, a little bit, but uh, I, I've mentioned to some people that I've I've interacted with in training circles that uh, you know the courthouse is a public building, 
Right. And if you want to see, if you want to see what yes. the potential outcome of your freedom, <laughs> your your liberty looks like, uh, you can go up to the jury pool. How shallow the pool is of potential jurors. Where I live, it it typically comes out of the driver's license pool, right? If you register right. your driver's license, that address keys on, and uh, you get randomly computer generated selected. And right, uh, right. But walk in there and look at the the potential jury pool. That's right. Have a look around. Tell, listen to the conversations that are that are occurring, and then tell yeah. me yeah. if you've seen any of those in your local firearms training class. Any of the people exactly. in exactly. Exactly. It's it's an eye-opening experience. Uh, not that I'm encouraging you to march down in legions and look at the, the jury pools, but it's something you can potentially do. And it'll change your perspective on what was the old phrase? I'd rather be tried by 12 than carried or, by or six. Ju- yeah. Judged by 12 or than carried by six, something yeah. of that nature. Well, yeah. I mean, maybe so. Uh, a lot of times these things don't, uh, defensive encounters don't always work out the way we think they're going to. Your example is spot on, though. I mean, I can recall, uh, you know, having to testify before the grand jury about different things. And, and uh, you know, they can ask you anything, you know, when you're the police officer testifying about something. And, and um, you know, there's always that that one person in there who either has an agenda or, you know, they their IQ is somewhere around room temperature. And uh, and when they ask a question, you're just I mean, it's it's so bad that the other jurors turn in their seats and look at the person. I mean, it's almost, you can almost like hear the the needle come off the record player, right? right. You know, and every, just the room goes silent. And then especially the foreman sometimes sighs and you can tell they have been enduring this person for however long the grand jury has been in session. Well, keep in mind that person is going into uh, their, their thoughts and questions are, are, are a major factor in determining whether or not you are going to be facing a criminal trial in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, younger in my career, I spent a, a lot of time testifying in court a lot, uh, because you know, you're, you're, you're high volume arresting felons and chasing right. bad guys yeah, when yeah. you're young, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I still have court cases that are, that are, in the system somewhere in appeals and, and all these others. Uh, and there is no worse feeling than setting in front of a jury and not being prepared to answer something. Uh, that's right. As a plea. That, that's right. That Despite is like your best efforts. Yeah. That you know? is terrifying. Um, fortunately, you know, I haven't had too many bad experiences. Um, but there's been a couple of times that I thought I, I should have been prepared to answer that. And I'm not. And right. Right. Uh, that's, that's something I think a lot of your, you know, I would say Joe six pack or whatever, the, those, the, the people that are, that are law abiding armed citizens. And even some police officers don't look at that and go, uh, this could have a horribly negative outcome. Uh, yes, it, it, no, they don't. Many people don't stop and think about that. Um, I, um, you know, Somewhere along the way in, in law enforcement, most of us, uh, we lose our innocence, so to speak, because you have these notions of justice and uh, these thoughts about uh, how things are supposed to work out. And and those thoughts are often based on, you know, what we've learned growing up in school uh, in your social studies class, your government classes. It's based on what you learned in the academy. And, you know, if you went to college and, you know, what you read in the law, 
what you read in the Constitution. And um, I, I can tell you that in some places and that in on some days, say just a random day of the week, sometimes justice is a byproduct of the ongoing you know system. It's just a machine. And that machine is grinding out a product every day. And uh, just like any other factory, uh, every now and then uh, they, it produces a lemon or two. And um, I think all of us, when we're younger officers, uh, like you said, you, you know, you're testifying all the time, uh, you, you, learning how to testify better, learning what to prepare for. You go in there with a case that you think is just a simple, it is a simple one plus one. It is a, this is a black or white issue. This is a binary deal. And the obvious answer is so clear. And then despite all of that, that case does not work out the way you think it does, you know, and uh, I've seen that happen a couple of times. And that's when you realize, wow, there uh, there was not any justice done here today. And then you realize, and guess what, dude, it's not my place to say whether what is or isn't just. I don't actually get to say that that's up to a judge or that's up to that jury. And uh, whether I like it or don't like it is irrelevant. What matters is that system is set up that way and they're the ones who get to make those decisions. Not me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, (laughs) I I had about three, four years into law enforcement work when I had one of those occur and really made me question my, uh, you know, my sensibilities about things and yeah, it it will do that. And I, I think we all go through that and that's something I think that is unique to, uh, you know, your, to law enforcement versus, you know, somebody that trains, that's a a highly proficient armed citizen or, or sure. Or somebody that's a highly proficient military operator. Uh, they, they don't get that jury set in front row in front of a jury and no later finding out that your idea of justice was not served at all. Exactly. Um, Right. And uh, it, it can be horrifying uh, when people actually realize, I mean, when the realization washes over them, uh, it, it is horrifying when they realize that, hey, you are now a suspect and you will be treated as a as a witness, but you are not the decision maker in this in this situation. Uh, you have become involved in a, in a you know, in a use of force incident. Um, you have your version of what happened. And there is now going to be an independent investigation over which you have zero control. And you also don't get to choose the personnel. Uh, You don't get to decide if it's the best detective of that department that's going to be looking into your case or if it's going to be the slacker that nobody really likes. Uh, You you don't get to choose it. You don't get to choose that judge and you don't get to pick that jury. Uh, It is completely out of your control. And now your best bet is or your best hope is that you did do everything right, that you can authenticate that what you did was correctly, that you can provide at least some circumstantial evidence uh, of your training, your background, so forth. And then you're going to need a You are going to need a good lawyer because, uh, again, it's uh, I mean, I would compare it to, you know, somebody who has never, ever engaged in any kind of ground fighting ever in their life. Uh, now you've just been taken to a jujitsu tournament. And uh, you're told uh, here in five minutes, uh, we're going to need you to get on that mat right there in front of everybody in this gym. And you are going to roll with a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. 
Uh, oh, by the way, he's also an incredibly great physical condition, you yeah. know, he's, and, uh, and, uh, you don't have any choice. So yeah, five minutes, start warming up. That's, that's, uh, you know, and that's, that's how horrifying it can be. Except the difference here is that you, you're not going to get choked out or get your arm broken. The difference here is that, uh, you can end up in prison, uh, or if you don't go to prison, uh, you can still end up being a convicted felon and be on probation or, you know, for the rest of, you know, for the next decade. But the other thing that, that, and I cannot stress this enough uh, to people is that uh, there is no such thing as winning. Once you've gone to court, once you've been accused of, of something or once there's not winning, you don't win anything. Uh, you get to keep your freedom, but uh, people don't stop and think about, the cost of that in terms of dollars, yeah. they don't think about how this could literally cost somewhere between four hundred and five hundred thousand uh, dollars to launch this defense. And that's just the criminal part of the defense. That's not the civil suit that is likely, very likely to come afterwards uh, when the, uh, the family or the estate of the person that you were forced to shoot uh, suddenly remembers that he was their most beloved family member. And that he was a wonderful person, and um, and then they come after you. Uh, so uh, I I hate to paint such a dark picture, but uh, I'm you know you and I both seen this from the law enforcement side, and now I am seeing it uh, working as an expert witness for lawyers. Um, the uh, the process will grind. I mean, can grind you to dust and grind your financial future uh, completely away. Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh one of the big reasons I'm a proponent of uh, CCW safe there. I've seen what they do, but uh, it's it, on the armed citizen side, but still it's uh, I, I like that. It's not, you don't go to court and win. You, no, no. you, go, you go to court and it's a push, you know, that's it's, right. That's it's, right. It's a tie. Um, y- yes. You know, I, I've told some, I mean, again, I'm not an attorney, so, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not claiming to be, you know, a, a all knowing about all, you know, legal matters. Uh, but I've, you know, I've told people that, look, um, if you get into a shooting, let, let's just lay this out for a moment. It's this ridiculous scenario. So let's say that you are in a very public place. There are uh, multiple cameras uh, filming you. I mean, let's just even say that there's a there's a professional TV crew there, right? From you know, with the cameraman, the whole thing. They're filming uh, a few seconds before everything happens, so everybody in the whole world can see. It's it's just impeccably documented that you were minding your own business, and then you know, some guy shows up with a weapon, begins threatening you, says all the magic words that would that would lead a reasonable person to believe that uh, you know he is genuinely an imminent deadly threat, and that if you don't shoot him, you are about to be killed. So you pull your pistol, you address that threat, you use only the amount of force required to to stop the threat. And then, uh, and that's it. He, you know, so you shoot him, let's just say you shoot him two times on multiple cameras, he drops and that's it. Uh, you still are absolutely going to need a lawyer and you are absolutely going to have to pay. Somebody's going to have to pay, uh, for that, for that lawyer. I mean, they don't come, they don't work for free. They don't. And, uh, so even with something that's that well documented, they show it all to the grand jury, uh, you're still going to be on the hook for, if I had to guess, I'd say somewhere, probably somewhere around $20,000. Uh, 
you know, just and that's that that is the best case scenario where, again, it's a ridiculous scenario that I'm I'm proposing. But uh, if you have actual live human witnesses and multiple videos of this use of force encounter, you're still probably on the hook for around twenty thousand dollars. And when it is clear that you were completely innocent and that you had you had to do that. So that's that's the reality of our legal system. Yeah. Yeah. Pay 20 grand to be right. <laughs> that's correct. That's correct. Or, you know, you can. Uh, and again, some some of the attorneys who take public, you know, do public defense work. They're great. They're great lawyers. And some are not, uh, you know, just uh, uh, not all attorneys are, are created the same. And, and believe me, nobody has as much of a vested interest in your personal freedom as you do. Uh, and no matter how expensive the attorney is, you're still you're a client and uh, but they're not going to, you know, they're not going to have the kind of passion that you have for your personal freedom and your and your financial future. Uh, they need to get paid to do their job and uh, which is reasonable and it's, it's expected. So, um, you know, it's uh, it, I just it, it, I just want to make sure that people really give some serious thought to uh, who it is they're training with uh, training under and is is the instructor that you're training with a person you would be proud to have come in and testify at your trial? Uh, is that kind of person capable of a professional presentation and and pre- overall presence in a courtroom, uh, you know, un- under questioning by a hostile attorney in front of a jury of, uh, of your peers? Uh, and if the answer to that question is no, if you would not want to admit uh, in a courtroom that, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, uh, you know, I paid a couple thousand dollars and went and trained under this dude. Uh, if, if you have any reluctance to admit that in, in a in a public courtroom, then you probably shouldn't be training with that person. So here's uh, we'll call this the like the shot across the bow or whatever. But do you foresee a time uh because I've seen this in law enforcement, we have a we have a uh, an incident, and training records get pulled out, and the trainers get called to the uh, to the offices where people wear suits, you know, that yes. don't have their name on it. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> right, uh, and you now have to argue or or defend your training record, uh, uh, the the training you provided. Uh, Correct. I have not become aware of a case of this in the uh, armed citizen space as of yet. Do you see a time that that's going to happen? I believe it will happen. Uh, And the reason that I believe that, again, is based on statements made by attorneys that have hired me uh, to work on cases right now. Uh, One one case in particular, uh, again, the you know, this this person, uh, this person held himself out to be uh, sort of a tactical kind of guy. Um, he um, clearly had in some way, shape or form had been influenced uh, by, uh, I'll say, gun personalities on the Internet. I'll put it that way. And um, I, I specifically asked uh, the uh, the attorney that I was working for if this person uh, was known to have had any kind of formal training. And he said, no, we don't think he has any formal training, but let me assure you, if we had found out he had formal training, you better believe we were getting ready to subpoena whoever it was that taught him this stuff. 
And so these thoughts are already going through their mind. These are the same attorneys. I mean, the same attorneys that are obtaining subpoenas and, and you know, you know for, for police officers, disciplinary records, training records, et cetera. Well, those are the same attorneys that are going to be representing other people in, in, on the civil side of things. They're the same attorneys that are, uh, you know, that are going to be, uh, again, representing in some cases, uh, either representing the business that sues you. Uh, or, you know, it represents the family uh, of the person that you shot. And so, yeah, they they already they're already doing this when they're suing uh, police officers and suing city, you know, cities and uh, counties and employing the law enforcement officers. So why wouldn't they start to try to uh, do the same thing in these cases, especially if the uh, if the defendant, i.e. the, the armed citizen uh, has posted any kind of videos or post, you know, has an internet presence of their own where it's clear that they are, a, a, you know, they're a, a serious member of the, of the American gun culture. Uh, when you, when you put yourself out there, you know, expect to have those things looked into and or validated. And so I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I'm with you. I haven't seen that yet, but I really do think it's coming. I really do. Yeah. I figured it would be a matter of time uh, because I've, I've been aware of that in the, the the la realm for as long as i've done it uh, oh yeah and that's that's some some of the driving force behind why you have a training record file that's maintained and yes. updated and constantly uh, constantly added to right right um uh, and i can give tons of examples of you know officers that were held not liable for things based on what they were trained 20 years ago versus current training trends and right. and the same thing on the other side uh officers that were held liable for uh for training trends that they were informed of and didn't Correct. adhere to right right especially when those are some of those are uh, that i'm thinking of are those mandatory classes you know some some states have mandatory training for every peace officer in that state on whatever the subject is, you know, and we'll just say subject A. And then uh, you go and, and get involved in, a, in an ugly situation uh, where the training that you received in subject A should have absolutely been apparent and obvious in your actions and decisions. And then when it's not, that's the first thing they go to look at. Hey, did he get training in subject A? Yep, he sure did. In fact, here's the lesson plan for that class. Here's the roster of that class, which has the names of all the other students who were in that same class. Hey, let's go talk to them too, Bob. And guess what? They do. Yeah. Do you remember in when you attended this this class on subject A? Like, uh, yeah, I remember that. Do you recall the instructor ever saying the following words? You're right. Know, always, always never do such and such. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. I remember them saying, don't ever do this. Don't ever do that. And always do whatever. And so you remember that. Yeah, I remember that. And so they get four or five different people in that class to, to testify uh, that they heard the instructor say these things. And it's not going to go well for you if you're if they're like, hey, you didn't not only did he not adhere to his training, he disregarded it completely. And it was a serious, important point, because even other students who were in the class remember five years after the class was held. They still remember that the instructor said these things that happens in law enforcement. Yeah, uh, all the time. Uh, <laughs> what uh, uh, back to the like contract training side, and, and let's speak to the guy that's the you know your your firearms instructor dude. Right. Uh, you mentioned lesson plan. Yes. Um, 
how do you court proof a lesson plan or not court proof it, but how do you be prepared for it to be entered into uh, the realm of the judicial system? So the, the thing about less, all documents, any kind of document is that uh, it, it's a, it's going to be looked at by a so-called expert, right? And there's going to be some other guy from out of town who s- supposedly is well-trained in this same, in this same field, uh, use of firearms, uh, you know, to protect oneself. Um, and they're, they're going to have those people look over those lesson plans. Uh, if, if you do in fact have them and, um, you know, some people think that, uh, well, you can cover yourself by not covering yourself. So we, we just won't maintain anything like that. Uh, okay. Well, that's one philosophy. And, and sometimes that works out, but again, uh, I think we all remember that I was saying, if, if it's not written down, it didn't happen. And, you know, having, you know, having a lesson plan, which specifically states what you're going to teach, or at least covers the, the, just the, ba- the basic foundations and subject areas that are covered in the class can be very helpful. But um, if nothing else, it, it could be a way to prove or tend to indicate that you did not teach something uh, that was stupid, foolish, reckless, and in, you know, in contradiction to the law. Uh, imagine if you imagine being a professional firearms instructor. And one of your students uh, gets into an ugly, an ugly and unnecessary shooting, and then they invoke your name repeatedly in uh, in their interviews with law enforcement, uh, in court, et cetera. Um, you should expect to be contacted and maybe not have to go down to the courthouse in this particular county or state where this occurred. But you should definitely expect to be contacted and possibly to have to either give an affidavit uh, or to be deposed. Yeah. And, uh, I've set through enough depositions to realize that I don't ever want to set through one again. If I don't have to, um, that's an unpleasant experience. Even if you're prepared, uh, for yes. those that don't know the rules in a deposition are not like the rules in a courtroom. No, no, uh, they're not. Yeah. That's and a, they can get, a, they can get a little bit sporty in there. Um, yeah, I remember you, so you and I were talking, uh, uh, previously, and one of the things that, that I brought up about this is, uh, how difficult is it to prove a negative? Can you prove that you did not tell, you know, this citizen to, uh, you know, to shoot people to the ground? Uh, well, uh, if you don't have any documentation, then no, you can't. But if you have a lesson plan, if you're a professional instructor and you have a lesson plan, you have some kind of documentation that covers the lawful use of deadly force, the lawful deployment of a firearm. That is a way that you can at least somehow, some way indicate, tend to tend to show, tend to demonstrate that you did not say something stupid like that to one of your students. And, um, you know, I'm I, again, I'm not an attorney. I'm not claiming that whether they do or don't necessarily have liability. That's not the point. The point is, if you're a firearms instructor, do you really want to be dragged into a court, a courtroom and and uh, thrashed by, again, a hostile attorney in front of a jury? Uh, Or would it be better off if you had if you're a professional instructor, if you had professional documentation uh, to back up the fact that you are, in fact, a professional and that you can send that documentation to whoever wants to see it? you know, at a moment's notice, because that tends to indicate that you are, in fact, a professional. Uh, or did you just stand out there and just rattle off whatever came to mind and uh, and said a bunch of silly stuff in front of a bunch of students? And uh, and now you can't you can't back yourself up. 
Yeah. Well, Doug, I think that's a, <laughs> I think that's a lot of food for thought for the uh, average listener. This one may, uh, this one may set off uh, fireworks on their interwebs at some point. We'll have to see <laughs> how that goes. But so, where can we find you? Let's just say my attorney needs to find a guy from out of town. Yeah, uh, I mean, you can you can find me. I mean, my website is rdrtexas.com. rdrtexas.com. Yes, sir. There's the letters R D R and the word Texas all spelled out. dot com. Uh, you can see my uh, you see my website. See a little bit about me and my background and history. Uh, then you can also see the services that I offer. And um, again, at this at this point, uh, a year into it, I, I would say that probably 95 percent of everything I'm working on uh, is is well, I'm, I'm working for lawyers. Uh, they send me cases, um, I, you know, voluminous uh, cases. I have to, so I have to read all the reports. I look at all the videos, uh, come up with my own set of questions, uh, conduct my own analysis and uh, assessment of things. And um and then eventually, uh, if, if there's enough information there that I can work with, I write a, a, a professional report or a professional opinion. And there are legal requirements for those kinds of documents. And uh, the federal government has the federal courts have their own set of requirements. State of Texas has their own. So depending on what kind of case I'm working on, um, you know, the format of my letter will be a little bit different. But my reports tend to. Uh, the ones I've written thus far, I'd say the average length of those reports is somewhere around uh, 15 to 20 pages. Um, one one case in particular that I that I just finished uh, working on, that one went, uh, I think, right about 40 pages. And it, looking at every tiny nuance of of the incident uh, from the from the very beginning, the very genesis of the incident, all the way through, uh, all the way through the outcome, whatever that was. Hey, thanks, Doug Deaton. A lot of good food for thought in there uh, if you're a firearms instructor or carrier or if you're a cop uh, on the realm of training and uh, documentation thereof. All right, check out our sponsor, title sponsor of the podcast right now is KSG Armory. KSG Armory. Links are always in the show notes. Make her a fine custom Kydex holsters and CCW safe. Off-duty tenant checkout gets you 10 off your membership. Most comprehensive coverage by the most experienced team. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Also, Guardian Conference 2022. Sorry, I didn't mention it in the pre-show. Still a few slots available. (laughs) Get on the link in the show notes and get to the Guardian Conference. Oklahoma City Gun Club in September. EDC Belt Company will be there with some exclusive belts only available there. The Off-Duty, On-Duty Podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor, and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. 
Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.